Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. morning we're going to be in Romans chapter 3 and the last time the message was titled false foundations and people go through life you know it's amazing if they invest money they do research if they build a house they do research Um, many folks unfortunately on this planet have ideas about heaven and you know they kind of wing it sometimes they get advice from their friends Um, and it's sad because eternity is a very big place and You know, there is no time in eternity. So it's so important to understand what the way of salvation is. And there's a lot of false foundations. There's also a lot of false foundations in religion. Uh, People treat God like they would appease a a parent or somebody else. But, you know, God is knowable. He's knowable in his word. Uh, And the, the proper foundation is the foundation of Jesus Christ. And what's interesting is we've been going through a lot of doctrine in Romans. We're going through a lot of doctrine. And there's important things that we need to understand. We need to understand what is the law. Why is grace so great? Uh, And when you understand sin and the law and all these kinds of things, um, the good news becomes that much greater. Uh, So this morning, uh, the message is titled, The Righteousness Gap. And the Bible says, we're going to read it, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So we don't have that righteousness, that innate righteousness. God is righteous. God is good. God is perfect. So there is a gap between us and him. And how do we get to him? How do we bridge that gap? How do we walk across and and have a bridge built so that we can be in fellowship with God? And we're going to see that through Jesus Christ. The interesting thing is in the last chapter, chapter 2, the Apostle Paul was in what we would call a monologue, and now he moves through half of the chapter into a dialogue. He actually answers a lot of questions that people had back then, but he also answers a lot of questions that people have today. So it's going to be very exciting to see uh, 2,000 years ago the questions that were asked, and you'll see, you might even have some of those questions, but they're found, the answers are found in the scripture. Now, Answering questions. Some people are genuinely seeking God. They do have questions. And then some are just argumentative and it's sophistry and, um, you know, debate for the sake of debate. Uh, and you have to ask yourself, do I really want to know about God? Or am I, you know, asking these questions, throwing these things out almost as a smokescreen because I don't want it to get too close to my heart. So we're going to answer this and we're going to see this in four parts. Uh, very exciting. So chapter three. It says, now remember remember this context, this was read all these chapters as one complete thought, so I'm going to have to go back into context. Uh, The Apostle Paul says, what advantage then has the Jew, or what is the profit of circumcision? Much in every way, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. For what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Will man's unfaithfulness faithfulness carry through and make God unfaithful is what he's asking. Certainly not. Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar. As it is written, 
he's quoting from Psalm 51, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. This is God we're talking about. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, this, this thing that happens when we mess up, God can still turn that into good, and we'll talk about that. What shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? I speak as a man. Certainly not. For then how will God judge the world? For if the truth of God has increased through my lie to his glory, why am I also still judged as a sinner? And why not say, let us do evil that good may come, as we are slanderously reported and as some affirm that we say their condemnation or their judgment is just. So one out of four is God's righteous judgment. Again, in context, the opening, you're like, well, what's he talking about here? Well, we just covered chapter 2 last Sunday, and the Apostle Paul was saying that God doesn't show favoritism. And we talked about people today, whether in denominations or religions, you know, we're the best and God favors us. And he says right off the bat, God's not prejudiced like people are. He doesn't show bias. He loves everyone equally. He judges everything equally. So then the Jews, right, Paul was a, a rabbi and who has believed in Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior, and he's speaking to fellow Jews, or Jews who became Christians and are still relying on the old things like the Old Testament law, instead of fully relying on Christ. So they say, well, Paul, then what, what advantage is it to have been Jewish? And he says, here's the answer. Because, it, again, today it's a hard thing to, you know, in our culture, Jew, Gentile, like it's so foreign to us. But basically the Jews understood the monotheistic God and everybody else was in paganism or polytheism. Um, and then that has changed over the years, of course. So what is the advantage that the Jews had? And he says, well, they received, we received as Jewish people, the oracles, literally the utterances of God. In other words, the Jews had scripture. You know, they had the Ten Commandments. They had the prophetic works. The prophets would speak about the future Messiah. So he's saying, we have, you have a rich heritage. Now, today, right, we have a book that we call the Bible. Look, it's a book, like somebody published it a few hundred years ago. This is a compilation of 66 books written by 39 authors over a period of arguably 2,500 years. Um, scrolls in three different languages. Very exciting. But we sometimes, because we don't live in a persecuted nation, you know, we have it on our coffee table, we have it in our library when our Christian friends come over, but we don't open it. It has dust on it. So just to kind of talk to you about where we are in today in 2019, sometimes I'll say, you know, we should know our Bibles. It's not, I'm not up here saying, well, I'm going to punish you. Read your Bible. That's your punishment. No, reading the Bible is a blessing. You get to understand God. There's information in there. Uh, it's, it's a great thing. And roughly 26, 27 years old, when I came to Christ, all of a sudden I started reading the Bible. I'm like, I never knew this stuff existed. And then I did research on it and where it emanated from and who wrote it and the different Dead Sea Scrolls and stuff. And um, I was blessed by it. So, yes, the oracles of God, the utterances, and they're here for us to read anytime today, whenever we like. Verses 3 through 4, the next challenge or argument that's thrown out that the Apostle Paul answers is, well, what if some don't believe God? Well, what if people are unfaithful? Well, especially even when it comes to the Messiah, what if they just, they don't buy it? Will God respond also in unfaithfulness? And he goes, of course not. God always keeps his promises. So even if every man lies and fails, God never fails. 
And this is sometimes my difficulty, just trying to bridge that gap with somebody who doesn't know anything about God. And I'm like, listen, you can trust him. But they're like, well, I don't know him. And I know the way it is here in 2019 on the East Coast. Can't trust anybody. So it, it, it's a little bit of a learning curve to understand that God's not like people. He doesn't fail. He's honest. He's good. He, he'll never manipulate us. He just wants a relationship with us. Uh, verse 5 through 8, the third challenge that's thrown out in this, this dialogue. Basically, so if God can still further his plans in spite of or as a result of our unrighteousness or sin, God always turning something that could be a negative into a positive, is God wrong for judging us? And the answer is, you know, after all, our sin is helping him. And he's just this odd kind of logic that people ask, you know, in their own minds, this type of logic. And, you know, the question is, well, why judge Judas? You know, Judas betrayed Jesus. And some will say, well, wasn't Judas a helpless little pawn in God's grand manipulative uh, um, scheme of manipulating people? And the answer is no. Judas still made a choice to betray the Christ. As a matter of fact, Judas could have betrayed Christ and then gone out and repented and been saved. Wouldn't that be interesting? So I don't know Judas's heart, right? It's, it's, when you think of it, it's just really deep. It's powerful to even ponder something like that. However, if Judas didn't repent, he sinned, and God still had to judge him, even though God had the prophetic insight to know that this would happen in the future. And people get, when they're not familiar with prophecy, knowing the, the future from where you are at this point, only God can do that. It gets a little confusing at, at times. So again, God can still work negative things into good. Judas betraying Jesus sent Jesus to the cross so he could die for our sins. But Judas still did, and that wasn't the only sinful thing that Judas did, and God had to deal with those sins, right? Now, just a little, just for my, uh, my Bible students, you know, you look at different doctrines, and there's like this hyper-Calvinist doctrine that basically says... We really have no free will. God wills all. Right? You look at Tulip, you know, the five points of Calvinism. Um, the eye is irresistible grace. So if God woos you, you can't resist him. It's like he's mesmerizing you. But that's not true. He's given us free will. Um, also, the T in Tulip, total depravity. We're so depraved that we can't even turn to God. Free will is an illusion. Well, that's not true either. Because even after Adam sinned, He's having a conversation with God in, in this sinful state. And God's still trying to coach Adam, and he's still trying to coach Cain, and he's still dealing with people. So um, logically, if you say that God wills everything and free will is an illusion, then that means, if you take it to its logical conclusion, that God wills evil and sin. And that's not true. The Bible is very clear about that. If God wills everything and we don't choose anything, we have no free will, then he's also the author of sinful things and evil, which is ridiculous. So there's man's, there's man's um, doctrines, and then there's the truth of what the Bible says. And you know what? Most people stumble about God. Well, I don't know if I want to become a Christian. Some of those people are weird, blah, blah, blah. It's because they're, they're listening to denominational and, and doctrines of men, and they're not reading the Scripture. If you read the scripture, you see God's plan for your life, you see his love for you, you see his salvation for you, and you see his grace. And it makes a whole lot of sense when you're reading the scripture. 
Uh, verse 8, the most absurd of all the arguments in this dialogue is, well, we should keep sinning and doing evil so God can turn it into good. You know what I'm saying? And again, you hear some of these kind of recycled questions today. Um, and some are legitimately asking those questions. As a matter of fact, some attributed to the Apostle Paul, and, and they did this whole thing about grace. It's too good to be true. So they actually said that about the Apostle Paul. They said, oh, he's preaching something where you could just do whatever you want. And Paul's like, no, no, that's not what we're saying here. You have to pay attention. Um, and he says their judgment is just because they're twisting the scripture. You see what I'm saying? Now, there is a teaching today, speaking about old heresies that get recycled, there's a teaching today, mostly in the prosperity gospel, that teaches what's called hyper-grace. Grace is an awesome thing, but grace also has to be in the context of of Christ's sacrifice for our sins and saving faith in Jesus and repenting. So hypergrace teaches that grace dominates everything. And basically when you could become a Christian, you could do whatever you want. You can sin wantonly. You can be a bad example to the world and it's fine. Almost to the exclusion disproportionately of other teachings, including the teachings of Jesus. Well, there's a problem with that. That also turns unbelievers off. Somebody who doesn't know Jesus sees Christians doing just crazy stuff and, and hypocritical things. And they're like, why would, why would I want to be a Christian? So again, there's the teachings of men. And men come up with all these teachings over the years. And they're twisted. And then there's the teachings of the scripture, which are solid. You get your nose in the Bible, you're going to find the truth. So when I say read your Bible, it's not a punishment. It also inoculates you from false doctrine. It's good stuff, right? Continuing on, verse 9, he says, what then? I love this Q&A with Paul because, you know, he kind of engages you in his discussion. He says, what then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged that both Jews and Greeks, or Gentiles, that they are all under sin, as it is written. Now, watch as I go through uh, verses 10 through 18 in my study Bible, it's italicized because what Paul does is he takes a compilation of several Old Testament Psalms to make his point. So as we read this, it's going to be pieces from different Psalms. He says, there is none righteous, no, not one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks after God. They have all gone out of the way. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. Not a pretty picture. With their tongues, they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, God's law, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world be, may become guilty before God because of sin. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. So two out of four is all are guilty before God. And trust me, there's good news this morning, okay? The next block, it makes it, you see, we, we start to turn a corner here. But you have to establish some truths about sinful flesh before we come to the good news of salvation. Amen? Amen. So, two, all are guilty before God. And what it says is that as when we're born into this world, we have really no innate righteousness. 
We have no innate purity because the human race is stained by sin. Interesting. And what it really tells us that is we don't naturally seek after God. The human race through many uh, millennia has just failed. Societies have failed. Debauchery, new, new nations become nations for a while. And you can see in our country, it was a crumbling infrastructure of our culture in the United States. It's, it's, it's sad to see what's going on on a regular basis. So what did God do? He sees the sin of, of people, of nations, of generations, and he sent his son to die for our sins. He gave us a way out. He gave us a lifeline. He gave us a life preserver, so to speak. Um, so he continues. Even religious people, sometimes, you, if you ever go on charitynavigator.org, it gives you a list of hundreds of charities. And you'll see the graft in these charities. You'll see the, you know, some of the, um, even secretaries and administrators of some of these big organizations are paid close to a million dollars a year. That, well, you really, you really need, you're a charity and you need to get that much money every year. And there's dozens of people. They show that out of every dollar you give to some of these charities, some of them, 15 cents of every dollar actually goes to the poor people. So you can see that even in, in good works of men and women, that there's sinful practices, there's bad motives, there's graft, there's all kinds of things. There's self-serving. Verses 13 through 14, he speaks about the throat, the tongue, the lips. What did Jesus say? That they're a reflection of the heart. And, and I'll just be honest as well, and it doesn't matter, you pick any church. Sometimes when you pull into that parking lot and you get out of the car, your language starts to change because you're coming to church, right? You see your Christian friends, and you know, in, when you're in your own home, and we've all done it, we probably say things we shouldn't say, like God doesn't see it. So he's making the case for sinful human flesh here, right? Um, he speaks about in verses 15 through 16, their feet, their ways, their actions. So the heart, the mouth, the speech, the ways, the actions. And verses 17 through 18, how the estranged from God can A, not have true peace or true reverence for God. And I can tell you that I've lived two lives, an unbeliever, you know, and also a believer and I look back and I say, I didn't have true peace. You know, I, I thought I was successful. I got the car that I want. I dated the girl I wanted. You know, I had the job that I wanted. Everything was going great, great for Joe DiProsimo, but there was still an emptiness. So the true peace wasn't there. The peace was only temporary when something new. Oh, I got a new car now. You know, I'm happy. Oh, I got a raise. Oh, I'm happy. And it doesn't last very long because there are worldly things. There are worldly things that can't fill the void in our, our soul that craves after God. And we can keep throwing things into that hole and they just disappear. It's the abyss. Uh, true peace comes from knowing God and having a relationship with him. That's how he's designed us. And some of us, it takes us later to get there. Some of us, we do it a little earlier. But, you know, it's your choice. You have free will. Verses 19 through 20, he says, through the law, we become conscience conscious of sin. So the more we understand the Bible, the more we understand the laws of God, we see our sin. He says that the world is guilty and every mouth is stopped. So not one person, and, and people do this, and maybe I did it before I was a believer, you know, well, I'm going to, when I die, I'm going to just, when I get to before God, I'm going to make my case. Yeah, I'm a good talker, right? That was dumb. You know, I would not do that now. Now I rely on Christ to, to plead my case. So, 
you know, some will, you know, maybe they're good talkers, maybe they're attorneys, and, and they just do this for a living, and they think that when they die, they're just going to prove to God, well, I never killed anybody, so you should let me into your heaven. Bad idea. Bad idea. And you see, Paul's going to make this case here. And, you know, they can yap, 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 yap all they want, and God is true. He judges according to truth, facts, righteousness, and nobody, no flesh will be saved. But the good news is coming. How many of you saw the movie or the play Les Miserables? It's a very, very famous, right? There was a guy, um, actually Jeffrey Rush played him very well. Does anybody remember Javert, the policeman? And he hounded Jean Valjean. Throughout the whole movie, he's after him. And you know what? It's funny. When I looked at that, and I started actually doing some research on this, the script, that there's a lot of Christian um, allusions in that, that piece, but Javert, to me, was a picture of the law. The law, Jeffrey Rush never broke a smile in that whole, it was really good. He had the uniform on, the hat, and he just had this scowl. And he was right. The law was good. And he held everybody to the law. He was uh, uncompassionate. He was unmerciful. And I'm going to do a little personification of the law in our closing. He was relentless in the pursuit of sin and punishing it. J.B. Phillips said, it is the straight edge of the law or God's law that shows us how crooked we are. So the law does something. It reveals to us that there's sin in our lives. And that's a good thing. Because a lot of, you know, a lot of churches, they, they don't want to talk about sin. They don't want to, you know, they got a bunch of people coming in, a lot of money coming into the coffers. They don't want to turn anybody off. So they won't teach the truth. And what they're doing is they're teaching or giving their hearers a grave disservice and a grave deception. The average person doesn't know God. You need Jesus. No, I don't. Why do I need Jesus? It's not until you explain to them God's righteousness, the law, and now Jesus even said on the Sermon on the Mount that even if you didn't commit those sins, if you you did in your mind, was Jesus being mean? No, he was trying to show us our deficit, our righteousness gap, so he could bridge it. It's very intellectual. And some people say, listen, I don't need to know all the doctrinal stuff, Pastor Joe. I just love Jesus, and that's awesome. So Christianity, true Christianity, is both very deep, very intellectual, very legal, very logical, but it's also very simple. You don't have to have a great education to become saved, to become a Christian. You just have to believe and have faith and trust in him, that childlike faith. So last Sunday I did an illustration with, um, you know, and this is why it's good. We have the videos now. We, we record. Um, you can get them for free off the website. But there's times I'll do visual illustrations because to some, that really is helpful to them to understand better than just teaching from the pulpit. We continue, verse 21, and here's the good news. It says, but now, the righteousness of God apart from the law. So the law has its own righteousness. It is good. Don't kill. Don't steal. Don't think about hurting your neighbor. Don't think, don't covet your neighbor's riding lawnmower that they just got or the new addition that they put on their house. Don't do it, right? Not even in here. The law is good. It has a righteousness that we can't follow. It's perfect and we're not. So The righteousness of God apart from the law, secondary righteousness is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God, which is through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference. 
For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth to be a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed, to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Three out of four is the description of righteousness and the good news. This is the climax of the chapter. We're turning a corner. He says, but now, right? It's a disassociative conjunction, but you, you heard all this stuff, but now we got to go in a different direction. I got to show you something here, but now. The title of Romans is why Jesus is the only way. Why? Why? Why do I need Jesus? And I ask that as an unbeliever. Why do I need Jesus? Explain it to me. Don't just tell me to believe. I want to know. And that just was me. It took me a while. But without the law's revelation revealing sin, needing Jesus makes no sense. Jesus is the only way and the only one who can bridge the righteousness gap and the righteousness deficit that we hold, right? And God doesn't. God is perfect. I just, I just kind of throw this out at you because I like playing with numbers. Did you know, and you could do this with a calculator, did you know if you live to about 80 years old, you have about, well, you don't have about, you have 2.5 billion seconds in your life. Has anybody ever done that? Only weird people like me do that stuff, right? I'm just 60 seconds times 60 minutes is an hour times 24. And this is what I did. I just had this thought in my head. So 2.5 billion seconds in our life. If we're fortunate enough to make it to 80, if you make it further, you got more seconds. It only takes one second to sin in your thoughts. So, you know, if you, again, I took uh, uh, statistical probabilities in college. If you flip a coin 2.5 billion times, it is an impossibility. It is a statistical and mathematical impossibility that if you flip a coin 2.5 billion times, it's always going to land on heads or it's always going to land on tails. It will never, ever happen. So the probability in your life that you're going to sin once, in one second, in your thought life, I didn't kill anybody, God, no problem, let me replay the videotape of your life, is big. So everyone's going to get there. And that's why it only takes one chain on the link of all those billions of seconds to break for you to be separated from your ever-loving God. Now, I'm speaking about myself, too. If you're new to the church, you never heard this stuff before, I'm not sitting here saying me against you. I'm in the boat with you. I'm just teaching this morning, okay? But I'm in the boat with you. So verse 21, he reveals a second righteousness that will save us apart from following the law to a T. And it was witnessed by the law and the prophets. If you look at the law and you look at the prophets, they all point to Jesus. Show me a prophet in the Old Testament, and I will show you him him telling you or her telling you outrightly, about Jesus being the Messiah before he came, uh, or an implication to that, or symbolism, that you could make that leap, and it's not hard to do. So, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. When Christ came, he fulfilled the law. He did all the work on the cross, and when we believe in what he did, his righteousness is imputed to us. 
you know, it's legal. God had a dilemma. They're, they're all, they've all sinned. They, I can't have fellowship with them. So God found another way, a righteousness apart from the law through Jesus to fulfill the law, for him to, to have that sacrifice for our sins, a propitiation to God, so that we, as we believe in this, that righteousness is now is, is imputed to us because he's cleaned our slate, so to speak. So the propitiation, big word, just means that it's an appeasing for sin and unrighteousness. Justification is a legal declaration of righteousness. Okay, and then redemption, buying the human race back from the slave market of sin to be set free. If I could read to you Second uh, Corinthians 5.21, and you almost see, and I say this all the time, you see a switching going on. Jesus on the cross died for my sins, and everybody here, even the ones that I haven't committed yet, figure that one out. That's a mind teaser. Um, and then... When God sees me, he sees me perfect and righteous like Jesus because it was imputed to me. So he says, for he, the father, made him the son who knew no sin, meaning no, based on familiarity, he never sinned, to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Only God could do this. We've been showered by his grace. So this is neat. All sinned. To the possibility through Jesus that all can be redeemed. Well, what about the person living in the remote area of Australia? You know, that person too, he died for them. Well, what about the Hindu and the Muslim? He died for them too. They can also turn to Christ. Well, what about everybody? <laughs> you don't have to go through the list. You know what I'm saying? It isn't, it isn't um, germane to uh, the Americas. It's for everyone. As a matter of fact, Christianity started in the Middle East, not here. Right, So we, we get to be blessed from it coming this way as well. Verses 25b through 26, he says, Because in his, God's forbearance, he passed over the sins that were previously committed. So in other words, in, other words, in the Old Testament, good question, people ask, well, how were they saved? Well, they were saved by faith. They were f- saved by faith in God that he would deal with their sins. And so cool, next Sunday we're going to talk about Abraham. People say, well, Abraham was saved by circumcision. No, he wasn't. He was saved before circumcision. Well, Abraham was saved by the law. No, he wasn't because it was his great, 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 great grandson Moses who gave the law. So he didn't know the law yet. Well, Abraham was saved by, you could say all you want. Abraham was saved the same way we're saved, by faith in God that he would deal with the issue. Now, they had the sacrifices, they had the temple services, and those were just a temporary covering. But God, in his forbearance, passed over those sins in the Old Testament, didn't condemn anybody. And when Jesus died, he died for those in the past, present, and future. 27 years in a denomination, I I never knew any of this stuff. I, I, you know, when I started reading the Bible, I was, I'm flipping the pages, like feverishly, like trying to absorb it. Like, wow, this is so cool. 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock at night, my wife said, would you go to bed? I'm like, ah, I just got to read this one more chapter. So uh, it's exciting. It really is because there's, there's knowledge and there's truth and there's power in it. Last few verses, 27, he says, Paul says, so where's boasting them? You know, bragging, you know, I saved myself and, and I was a self-made man, but that wasn't going to save my soul. We'll get to that. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law of works? No, but by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified, declared righteous, by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Again, through Christ. Or is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes. 
of the Gentiles also. Jesus bridged that gap between the Gentiles and the Jews, and he brought them together under one tent, which is pretty awesome. Uh, Since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, do we then make void the law? What happens to the law? Through faith, certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. So four out of four is boasting and works have no part in salvation. With the caveat that when you have trusted in Christ, you have a relationship with God, you want to do works, good works. See, sometimes religion has it backwards. You work your way to heaven. Well, then you can boast in your works, can't you? He says, boasting, bragging, saying, I I did it. I worked my way to heaven. Listen, you can do the stair stepper. You could do the marathon. You can do all that stuff. But man, that's not going to get you to heaven. All that stuff is relevant. You can get all the, I I got a doctorate. I got a master's. Wonderful for you. It's only relegated to this life. I got promoted 10 times. Everybody at work loves me. That's great. To get to heaven, you don't work. He did the work on the cross. Remember that. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, let's jump to that. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 tells us this. Very pithy, these two, these two verses. He says, for by grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourselves. You know what this tells you? That faith is not a work. I'm going to get to that. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Right? Unfortunately, in some the hyper-Calvinist movement, they also think that if you have faith and saving faith, that it's sort of like a work. You're totally, so totally depraved that you can't do anything. You can believe. God give us that ability. So that you have to be careful with some of these doctrines. Let's look at it this way. Faith. Faith. I like in this too, I'm not a great swimmer. I can do a lot of things, but swimming, I'm just not going in really deep water. But, so let's say you're swimming and you get carried out and you start to, you start to panic. Like there's an undercurrent and you, you, you're starting to sink. You're drowning. And the lifeguard, he or she sees you. Lifeguards are awesome. And they jump into the water and they go to save you. Now make the analogy with a lifeguard being Jesus Christ, and you're the sinner, you're struggling, you're drowning. The more you work, the more you try, the, the lower you go. As the lifeguard starts to approach you, the lifeguard often tells you, stop struggling. Anybody lifeguards here? Anybody been a lifeguard? Awesome. Because what happens when that person is struggling, sometimes they could bring the lifeguard down. So the lifeguard has to say, stop working. I'm going to do all the work. And you can see that with, with people, right? Christ is that lifeguard. If you choose to have faith in him and he brings you to the shore, he brings you to, to his heaven, can you boast in yourself? No. You could brag about the lifeguard, but you were drowning. And that's embarrassing, okay? So, you know, you, you kind of have to look at it. Actually, Warren Wiersbe came up. I don't, I don't want to take credit for it with the lifeguard example, but I expounded on it. Faith is faith. It's in a class all by itself. Faith is not a work. Any person here can believe and trust in Christ. It really has to do with your heart, your, your will, your intellect. All those things kind of come together, how God made you, your free will. You can make that decision. Nobody can make it for you. Verse 31, he says, 
do we then void the law? You know, the Ten Commandments, all the different laws that God had uh, put forth through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. How do we establish the law? Well, we believe in Christ. Christ told us that he came to fulfill the law and the prophets. Christ kept the law 100%. So we're riding on his righteousness, not ours. Pretty impressive. And then his righteousness is imputed to us. Verse 23. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We have a righteousness deficit. A righteousness gap. Which impedes us from spending eternity with God. However, Christ is the bridge. You know, here's men and women. Here's God. Here's this huge chasm. It has no bottom to it. We just can't get to him. So what Jesus Christ is, he laid down his body as the bridge so that we can get to God. Pretty impressive. I'm going to leave you with this, a little analogy, and then kind of, do, kind of wrap it up with my conclusion with Mother's Day. So this is really, hopefully between last Sunday and this Sunday, people completely understand the meaning of the law of God. Let's just say you get pulled over by the police. How many people have been pulled over for a violation? Oh, you bunch of lawbreakers. <laughs> I'd ask if you got arrested, but I don't want to do that. Don't raise your hands. <laughs> let's leave that one alone. Um, so just picture the law as a policeman, right? Not a human policeman. Because as I was a police officer, we're sinners too. We have faults too. We break laws too because we're not perfect. So put that aside. The law is the policeman. The law is perfect. The law um, is, you know, the law pulls you over. And the law looks at your equipment violation and says, yeah, you've um, violated a bunch of stuff according to the Title 39, the state of New Jersey, Chapters 3, Chapters 4. Here's some tickets. But the law also looks at your personal life and says, well, let's, let's move to another part. You've uh, sinned. You've lied. You've stolen. Um, I got your whole life's, you know, in front of me. It's on a sheet here. And now you need to step out of the car. I'm going to have to arrest you because your whole life is full of sin. Now, this is the law. This isn't a cop. And you, you get handcuffed and brought to the judge. And in the car, you're saying to the law, would you please have some mercy? I mean, these are like millions and millions of charges you got on me. I'm never going to get out of this. And the law goes, I wasn't designed to show mercy or grace. I was designed to show you your deficit of sin. I, I, have, I don't have the capability in who I am to show you mercy and grace. So you get hauled off before the judge. This is the father. He's got you know, his great white throne. And the law says, your honor, these are the charges. So the judge looks at all the charges and says, I'm going to have to sentence you on everything. You're guilty. And the person says, yeah, I know I'm guilty. I know I did all these things. But can you show me some mercy? Can you show me some grace? And the judge says, well, my job is to deal with the sin issue and to punish it like the law's job was to reveal it. What am I going to do? In comes Jesus Christ, the advocate with a capital A. And Jesus Christ stands next to you and says, I got this. And Jesus Christ says to the father, the judge, he says, my client is guilty of sin. You start panicking and going, oh, no, not you too. And Jesus says, trust me. And he puts his hands on your lips and says, shh, I got this. And he says to the judge, 
Your Honor, if you check your records, yes, my client is guilty of sin. However, if you check your records 2,000 years ago, I died for those sins. When I bled, I bled for all the sins of the human race, including this person right here. So if you'll see, Your Honor, somebody has been punished for that sin. It was me. So I think you need to move to let my client go to be exonerated. So the judge looks through all of his records, and he goes back 2,000 years and says, you know, you're absolutely right. And he goes to you, and he says, you're free to go. Enjoy your day. Isn't that pretty awesome? <laughs> so so this, is, this is the truth, folks. Why do I come up here every Sunday like a lunatic, trying to come up with some other illustration? Because when you get it, you get it. It's like you catch fire. Paul said, the Apostle Paul said, we're pleading with you. I'm pleading too. I plead every Sunday. We're pleading to you as if we were pleading through Christ. Let's wrap this up. Mother's Day. Mother's Day is what? It's a celebration of life. We're all here because we had a mom who brought us into this world. We're all breathing. We have a heartbeat. We have a brain that's functioning because of a mom who brought us into this world and sacrificed for us. So Mother's Day is a celebration of biological life. However, Jesus Christ is a celebration of eternal life. Jesus Christ did something that moms just couldn't do, don't have the power to do, to save our souls. So what Jesus did was he sacrificed for you so that you could live forever with him and the Father in eternity. So at the end of the day, if you do your research, you'll see that these things are true. John 3.16 said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever, anyone, anywhere, but I did this, doesn't matter, would believe, would not perish, but have eternal life. Let's pray. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfield. We're located at 15 Half Acre Road in Jamesburg, New Jersey. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. and Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays, we have children's church for all ages in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening and may God bless you.